0: Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This week on the show, we talk with world-renowned theologian Wayne Grudem. Very grateful to have him with us to talk generally about Christian ethics or the question of how should we as Christians live? Conversation coming up.
1: So you think of in football, a quarterback fakes a pass and then runs with the ball. I don't think we want to say that all actions that are deceptive are wrong. So sometimes actions intended to mislead or deceive or conceal are right. But words, verbal affirmations of a lie are never right.
0: Hey friends, Isaac here, your host. Welcome to the 133rd episode of our humble little radio podcast show, In Doubt. Uh, It's crazy to think that we've come this far, and it's just encouraging to know that uh, you listen. People are listening, and they benefit uh, from what we're saying, which is awesome. Uh, If you're new to In Doubt, the easiest way to kind of explain who we are um, is that we are a Christian ministry that seeks to bring the gospel to the relevant issues of life and faith that we face every day cultivating conversation, and we are uniquely Canadian, although we have listeners from all around the world. In fact, there's quite a listenership in Japan, which is kind of interesting as well. So if you're listening in Japan right now, that's awesome, and uh, you should let us know that you're listening from Japan. We'd love to get to know you. Anyways, um, we fulfill our mission uh, primarily through this radio podcast show. Uh, with a new kind of fresh conversation with a Christian guest from around the world every Monday morning. And each conversation has a featured topic of life or faith, whether we're talking about mental health or dating or video games or what have you, alcohol, different things like that. We also write articles and current event blogs on our site, as well as write and produce video Bible studies and host live events on Hot Topics. So for our conversation archive, all our articles, the Bible study that we've put out on Jude and our filmed live events, just head to indout.ca. Everything is there and it's all thanks to our partners, completely free for your use. Well, today, we get into the general idea of not theology necessarily, but the working out of that theology. A poetic phrase to memorize is this, your orthodoxy should lead to orthopraxy. So, Orthodoxy is right belief, and orthopraxy is right conduct. So, your right beliefs should lead to right conduct. Anyways, you can take it or leave it. Your orthodoxy should lead to orthopraxy. Now considering this topic, it's just just really important, but it's also a little touchy. You see, our culture, at least in Western civilization, has been teaching us with increasing passion that we ought to be autonomous individuals. Now, as we heard from Christian apologist Abdu Murray a few weeks ago, autonomy is not synonymous with freedom. Autonomy literally means self-governing. It means, you know, you decide what's true in regards to belief and practice. But it's ironic, though, because our culture still says, listen and obey government and, you know, don't hurt or disrespect anyone, but then media goes around and says, but do and be who you want and how you feel you should be and do. So, there's no moral foundation, so it gets kind of confusing. You know, what's respectful to someone might be disrespectful to someone else and it just goes on and on and on like that. So that's why Christian ethics is so important. Unlike the secular world, we as Christians have a strong, rock-solid moral foundation, the Bible. Everything we need to know about how to live and what behavior is acceptable to God, righteous in His eyes, is found in the Bible. But even among Christians, this can get a little touchy. From the very start of the church 2,000 years ago, there has been this issue of legalism. It's the idea that someone can kind of claim the identity of being a Christian, but their heart isn't actually transformed. You know, they deceive themselves and others into thinking that Christianity is based on what you do. You know, they do everything, quote-unquote, right, but it's not from the right heart motivation. So, you know, I I think about many people growing up in the mid to late 20th century who were, you know, in churches or had parents or relatives that, to some degree, I don't want to do a a wide brush stroke, but to some degree thought this way. Many did. Um, You know, that not listening to rock music and not dancing and not playing, you know, cards or poker and so on and so forth was essential to be a Christian. And people can still have these kind of thoughts today, but what's happened in sort of response to that is that people have swung on the pendulum all the way to the other side where it's not about what we do at all, and it's just about your heart. Well, that side has its own issues. In fact, like legalism, it's, it's disjointed. It's a disjointed worldview. It doesn't work well together. You know, if you believe in Jesus truthfully and have experienced regeneration from the Holy Spirit, then your conduct will begin to merge in line with God's will. And, you know, orthopraxy, you'll have right conduct. Now, if you say your heart's being changed and then go on living in sin, then you're just as hypocritical as the legalists. All that said, I just want to get us thinking about the importance of Christian ethics. If you're listening and you claim to know Christ and desire to live for Him, then this conversation will be helpful because it will help you know how to live according to God's righteous rule on earth. If you're not a Christian, or just a very skeptical Christian, know that this conversation is not based in this idea that, you know, in order to be a good Christian you need to do this and this and this. It's based, rather, in a true heart belief in God and His Son Jesus and the gospel. But anyways, let's listen to our conversation with Wayne Grudel. With me today is author and professor Wayne Grudem. Wayne is Research Professor of Theology and Biblical Studies at Phoenix Seminary and author of the popular theology textbook, Systematic Theology. He co-founded the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and he also served as the general editor of the ESV Study Bible. It's a great privilege to have you on the show with us today, Wayne.
1: Thank you, Isaac.
0: Um, Firstly, just so people can kind of hear a little bit more about who you are personally, uh, could you just give us a brief testimony of how you were saved?
1: I used to say that I first trusted in Christ when I prayed with my mother to receive Christ uh, as my savior when I was 12 years old, living in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Later, as I began to look back on my earlier childhood, I realized that I used to uh, pray often. I loved to read the Bible, I loved to sing hymns. There were many things in my life as a lower elementary school child, I'm talking first grade, second grade, third grade, that would um, indicate To me, uh, that that I probably was born again at a very early age. I don't remember a time ever when I didn't believe in God and believed in Jesus.
0: That's awesome.
1: I'm thankful for that, and that's been 70 years now.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Love to hear that. Uh, now, Wayne, with our short period of time, I'm going to jump right to the point of our of our conversation. Your your recent book, Christian Ethics, An Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning, it's releasing very soon. Excited about it. And the, really the first thing I want to ask you is this. What exactly are you talking about when you refer to Christian ethics?
1: Well, I define... Christian ethics as any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us about which acts, attitudes, and personal character traits receive God's approval and which do not? So um, the question that I'm trying to answer in various parts of the book is, how does God want us to act and, and think and even feel in our emotional level in various situations that come up in life? Another way of saying this, Isaac, is I've written the book to help Christians understand what the Bible teaches about how to obey God faithfully in daily life. I
0: guess, why write a—this is a massive book that you've written—so why write a book on Christian ethics at this at this point in history? So, I don't know, can you identify maybe some problems that you're seeing or issues that you're seeing in our culture that you kind of think that your book would help aid or or solve?
1: Yes, definitely. My opinion, Isaac, is as I, as I read and as I circulate among people in the Christian world, is that there is a lot of confusion, even among Christians, about how God wants us to act. Because in many cases, the, uh, the secular culture around us is so hostile to a, a Christian worldview and a Christian view of uh, obedience to God and moral right and wrong. Right. That has to do with issues such as lying and telling the truth greed and selfishness, sexual morality certainly, purity of speech, authority uh, authority of parents, men's and women's role in marriage and how we should act with each other in marriage, questions of divorce, abortion, end of life issues like euthanasia. There's so many things that uh, the secular culture has uh, settled on opinions, moral opinions that are contrary to God's word. Christians need teaching about this, And I've been now, as a professor, teaching biblical ethics for, um, I think, 41 years.
0: Oh my goodness. Oh, that's great. And it's true, though, when I think of the different questions, a lot of them are these more practical ethical questions rather than the kind of the deep theological foundational questions. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, You know, one thing you did say, uh, as I was reading the beginning of your your book, uh, and I really appreciated this, was that studying Christian ethics, in addition... Uh, to, you know, regular Bible reading helps you go from having just an instinctual ethical conviction to an informed one. And I could relate to that because as I as I think about some of the things like abortion or euthanasia, I have this instinctual, you know, conviction that, oh, that's, that's definitely wrong. But you're saying studying Christian ethics gives you this informed conviction. So I, I'm just wondering if you can kind of flesh that out a little bit because I think that's important to hear.
1: Well, just to take one example, Isaac, uh, the question of lying and telling the truth. I think because God has given us a conscience, Romans 2 says that God's law is written on everyone's heart. Uh, People have an instinct that it's wrong to lie. They don't understand clearly what a lie is. There are some situations in which they think a lie may be okay, other situations in which they're uncomfortable, but they don't have a clear sense of what is right and wrong. The Bible is very explicit. It, uh I think after careful study and analysis I hope that people can read the chapter chapter 11 on lying in this book oh sorry chapter 12 on lying I, I inadvertently spoke falsely <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that uh, that people will come away with a sense of yes this is what the Bible says this is what the Bible's standards are um, I if you define lie in a narrow sense of affirming, something you believe to be false in speech or writing, affirming something you believe to be false, then I think the Bible teaches us never to lie, that it's never right to lie. But people have to distinguish the, those verbal affirmations from actions intended to deceive. The people of Israel uh, in battle would uh, sometimes fake a, fake defeat and then ambush the enemy who came out of the city. Or uh, Samuel would um, take a heifer to sacrifice Where he was really going to anoint David as king, but he had an action that was a subterfuge. So, uh, and you think of in uh, football, a quarterback fakes a pass and then runs with the ball. I don't think we want to say that all actions that are deceptive are wrong. And Jesus said, when you fast, uh, anoint your head, wash your face. I don't have the exact words, so that it may not appear to others that you are fasting. So then we make a distinction. Sometimes actions intended to mislead or deceive or conceal are right, but words, verbal affirmations of, of a lie are never right. I don't know if that's a helpful explanation. Oh,
0: it is. Yeah.
1: But uh, there's, I'm, I'm trying to give more precision to the moral standard that people instinctively have a sense of their conscience about, but haven't really analyzed the biblical data. And so I put here in this chapter 12 about lying a whole large number of... Um, biblical verses about lying and truth-telling, saying how important it is and how the Bible does specify how we are to act in these situations.
0: Yeah, that's great. And you really, you are, you're just helping explain and really inform the Christian that this is coming from, this isn't just, it's not just coming from the fact that it's written on their heart, but it's because God's word has said it clearly in his word.
1: Exactly. And people can differ with me if they wish. I, in that chapter on lying, I'm disagreeing with uh, the authors of two other wonderful textbooks on ethics. Uh, John Frame, Doctrine of the Christian Life. He was my ethics professor at Westminster Seminary and has been a lifelong friend. And then my friend and colleague, John Feinberg at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Both of them think there are sometimes when it's appropriate to lie in order to protect life and I go into their arguments in some detail and uh, explain why I don't agree with them, but people at least have the arguments laid out there and they can read them and evaluate them for themselves.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's so good. You know, fr- from reading your introduction, Wayne, in your book, it, it sounds like the moment that we disbelieve uh, the inerrancy or the infallibility of the Bible, then our Christian ethics aren't as solid and they're prone to, to kind of shift to move. And I'm just wondering if you can kind of explain this in a little bit more detail, because I know that there are people listening that maybe wouldn't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible yet hold to, you know, Christian ethics.
1: Well, I would say to someone who thinks there are some uh, historical facts that are reported inaccurately in the Bible, I would say still you can go to the Bible and find what it teaches about how to live the Christian life, what it teaches about moral right and wrong, But I would also encourage people to consider the arguments for the truthfulness, total truthfulness of the Bible. I have a little bit of material on that in chapter three in this textbook on ethics. I have more in my systematic theology. But the question is, does God always speak truthfully to us? That's the question. If you begin to think there are some errors in the Bible, some things you can't trust, some mistakes, uh, then you cast doubt on the whole of the Bible because you're going to wonder if. Perhaps other areas of, of the of the scripture have mistakes as well. And so I, uh, I take all of God's word, all of the Bible as God's words, uh, completely truthful and reliable and trustworthy. And um, I've examined alleged contradictions and alleged errors in the Bible for over 40 years in my work as a professor. And I've never found any passage that is untruthful or that uh, doesn't have good explanations for why it can be consistent both with the rest of the Bible and with what we know about historical information from other sources.
0: Wow. Now, Wayne, I, I'm interested, as as you just said that, have you found that studying Christian ethics and writing this textbook on Christian ethics is believing, like you're saying, in the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible, has that made your study easier?
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, easier and harder. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, easier because I have one source to look at for moral and ethical standards, and that is the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Uh, That is an easier task than um, our Jewish friends who would look through the teachings of the Mishnah and the Talmud and the writings of the rabbis, 14 volumes on my shelf here, uh, or our Roman Catholic friends uh, who uh, have not only the teachings of the Bible, but the entire history of the uh, official or authoritative teachings of the of the Catholic Church and its leadership has to be taken into account. That's a, lot, that's a much larger body of material, so my task is easier looking through just the Bible. But when I say just the Bible, that's over 700,000 words and uh, a lot of very rich and deep material. And uh, I am not content to say that there's one moral standard taught, say, in the book of Exodus or Leviticus, and another moral standard taught in the book of Matthew or Ephesians. um, It's all God's word. It's all consistent when we understand it rightly.
0: You you know, it's interesting. Uh, I think about, you know, lying, telling the truth, and you've listed, and I saw that in your chapter on it, chapter 12, as we said, not chapter 11. uh, You've listed many, and just, you you even said it was a handful of the many more scriptures talking about uh, the importance of telling the truth and not, uh, you know, bearing false witness. So, you know, if lying was sort of an easier one to find in the Bible, what about something like, you know, marijuana or something like that? Was that harder to to figure this out because it, it's not in the Bible as much?
1: Well, uh, there are a couple of things to say about hallucinogenic drugs or actually about what I call illicit or illegal drugs. If in the country we live, the government has outlawed Certain drugs, then we should be subject to the authority of the government and, and not use them. Um, also, uh, with regard to the Bible, uh, we have Ephesians 5, which says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is excess, but, uh, or in which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So there's a command against drunkenness, which means losing sobriety, sound judgment uh, because of intoxication with alcohol. There is a parallel to the use of uh, some drugs, which are mind-altering drugs and induce in people a similar loss of the ability to have good judgment, sound judgment, make wise decisions. And so if the Bible forbids being drunk with alcohol, I think it would forbid being, in a way, intoxicated with drugs as well. There's another question, and that is uh, there are some passages in the Bible that use a Greek word related to our word pharmacy, uh, pharmakos, uh, pharmakeia. Uh, And it was used not only of positive use of pharmaceutical medicines in the ancient world, but it was also used to speak of harmful use or use of drugs for uh, mind-altering purposes. And that is sometimes translated sorcery in a number of um, number of Bible translations today, but that's put several cases among a list of sins, and those, those verses that say sorcery should, at least some of them, should be really translated or understood to mean don't use mind-altering drugs. Now, having said that, I say something about medical marijuana at the end of the chapter, and that is to say um, if there is a legitimate case to be made uh, for the uh, medical use of marijuana, if it is controlled like other uh, prescription medicines and um, dispensed for a legitimate uh, medical needs to control pain particularly uh, and sometimes for other symptoms of other diseases, then I don't think we should have objection to it uh, because uh, it could be a medicine that is occurring naturally in, in nature. But that's completely different from recreational use of uh, marijuana or other drugs, which I think the Bible would consistently be opposed to.
0: Absolutely. And I, I th- I'm i glad that you kind of went in detail there about marijuana. But I guess, is there any topic that you dove into in your book, Christian Ethics, that was particularly a, a little more difficult because perhaps the Bible wasn't as clear specifically?
1: Well, when you ask about difficult topics, um, one is certainly... How Christians Should Use the Old Testament as a Guide for Ethical Decisions in in the New Testament Age. And I have a long chapter. Now, before I tell you what chapter it is, I'd better look. (laughs) It's it's chapter 8, a fairly long chapter on how Christians should use the the Old Testament for moral guidance. Um, Another uh, fairly uh, difficult, or at least extensive question, is the question of how to know God's will. I think we are complex uh, persons as God has made us. And um, certainly the Bible is our absolute moral guide, but we have to take into account circumstances and our own uh, persons and gifts and callings. And I think there are, uh, I think God does uh, relate to us through the guidance of the Holy Spirit at times as well, and uh, through also putting things in our heart and giving us a conscience. Well, there's a complexity of Various factors to take into account in knowing God's will. So that was a more uh, complicated topic as I got into it.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's definitely interesting to hear. And you know, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm I'm curious as to hear your process uh, for discovering the Christian ethic on each topic that you that you chose because you know I don't know. Did you just you know look up a concordance, look for the word, and then just sort of make a Christian ethic based on what you've read? I'm I'm just curious as to know what was your process.
1: Yes, that's part of the process, Isaac. But another part of the process is there's been a huge amount of material written on Christian ethics in the history of the church. And so part of the process is reading what other ethics uh, teachers, writers, authors, professors have written about Christian ethics. I was influenced by John Murray, former professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, influenced strongly by his book Principles of Conduct, influenced by John Calvin in the 1500s in his Institutes of the Christian Religion influenced by uh, some things I read in Charles Hodge, a Princeton theologian from the la- from the 19th century, um, influenced by John Frame, my uh, r- wonderful and remarkable and amazing and brilliant uh, ethics professor from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and then influenced by interaction with students and uh, teaching and conversations through uh, 41 years of being involved in these topics. So there's an abundance of input that comes into studying any ethical topic.
0: Absolutely. And I'm curious as to why you chose to sort of, uh, you know, outline your book uh, with the Ten Commandments. I think that's kind of an interesting way to do it.
1: Well, I do have a a tendency to favor things that John Calvin has done. And (laughs) (laughs) And he he arranged things this way. Another another source that uh, does treat the Christian life in this way is the Westminster Confession of Faith. So it's a common tradition in the history of the Church to organize topics according to the Ten Commandments. And when you think about it, uh, Commandments 1 to 4 have to do with uh, honoring God. Commandment 5, honor your father and your mother, has to do with protecting the human family. Commandment 6, you shall not murder, has to do with protecting life. Commandment 7, you shall not commit adultery, has to do with protecting marriage. Commandment 8, you shall not steal, has to do with protecting property. Commandment 9, you shall not bear false witness, uh, has to do with con- with protecting truth. And um, Commandment 10, you shall not covet, has to do with protecting purity of heart. And so once we list those major subject areas, we've covered all of life.
0: Uh, Wayne, is the last question... Um, that is not so much connected to our conversation, but a little bit. Uh, for someone like yourself, uh, who has written some mammoth books that intend to teach others like you know your systematic theology textbook that I've used many times, uh, your, your books on feminism, uh, and now Christian ethics, um, this might seem kind of funny and I, I want you to hear it in the best way possible, but does James 3.1 uh, ever haunt you that those who teach are going to be judged with greater strictness?
1: All the time
0: so how 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 do you work through that?
1: Pray, ask God to enable me to have good judgment and be faithful to His word. And uh, I have a group of friends who pray for me and pray for my writing regularly, and that's a wonderful encouragement. And my wife, Margaret, uh, I know she's praying for me. Uh, I told her I had an interview with the Canadian radio uh, program, and uh, asked her to pray that the uh, that the Lord would guide the uh, the conversation. I am conscious, Isaac, of the, uh, the need to be faithful to the Lord every day of my life till the very last day. And I don't want to, um, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to dishonor him. I don't want to be unfaithful to his word or teach, teach something contrary to his word and not be faithful to the calling that God has, has given me and the opportunities that he's placed before me.
0: Yeah. No, that's so good to hear you say that. Thank you so much, Wayne. I really do appreciate uh, your wisdom and your your time today. Uh, If you're listening and you're interested in what we've been talking about generally, I'd I'd really highly suggest you check out the book, Christian Ethics, An Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning. Um, I'll provide a link to that book on the episode page, uh, but you can also head online to find it on Amazon and Crossway. Uh, You can also always find more about Wayne, uh, including articles and other resources at or just search his name on other popular sites like Desiring God or The Gospel Coalition, and you're going to be sure to find lots of good stuff there. But anyways, uh, thanks so much, Wayne, and I hope to have you back on again.
1: Thank you, Isaac.
0: That was author and theologian Wayne Grudem. Again, all you need to know about where to get his book, Christian Ethics, An Introduction to Biblical Moral Reasoning, and where to find more resources from Wayne can be found on our episode podcast page. You know, I'd be happy if most of us left this conversation believing this. What I do matters because my choices are, in fact, godly or ungodly. And the way I know what's godly and ungodly is found in the Bible. And I hope that's what you're thinking. Um, if you have any questions, though, about our conversation, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us directly via email at hello at or comment with your thoughts or questions under this conversation's post on Facebook on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, every single Monday, uh, we'll post uh, that week's conversation on each of those three social media networks. We'd love to hear from you and you know we'll respond to all of everything that you say. Also, we do love to get uh, suggestions for topics and guests as well. So if there's a Christian author or pastor or leader uh, that you've been listening to that you really enjoy, let us know who they are and we'll we'll see about getting in touch with them to talk to them. Or if there's a topic that's just burning on your mind or you're thinking about a lot, uh, we'd love to hear about it so that we could uh, seek someone out that could speak well into that conversation. Also, as we finish up here, I, I just must reiterate again that everything we do is possible because God has led many generous people to help sustain and grow this ministry with financial donations. Now, we love for you to consider, you know, possibly donating to this ministry. Now, if you do feel led, it's really easy. Just click the donate button and follow the simple instructions at indoubt.ca if you live in Canada or indoubt.com if you live in the States. Well, I'm Isaac and next week we have just an awesome opportunity to talk with our very first Australian guest. Uh, We'll have Dr. Sam Chan with us to talk about his new book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World. We'll see you then.